Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to a special episode. It is episode two of our top 40 careers. And of course, this is the update, this series that we're going to run through. We have no idea how many episodes it's going to take, but this is the second one. In episode one, we kind of broke down the uh, criteria, the perspective, the idea behind this list that I created in 2017 around the 40, quote unquote, 40 best or 40 most valuable careers that have played out in NBA history based on on-court play. And we take into account health and what era you played in and things like that. In episode one, we talked about the new players that potentially could have made this list and the few that have entered this list in the in this update that we're doing five years later. We talked about the honorable mention guys, which means, you know, they could have been in this top 40. If you wake up and you do this exact same exercise and you end up with Kevin McHale at 36 or something like that, that is essentially the same valuation, essentially the same conclusion or estimation that we've reached about Kevin McHale because the difference, Cody, in spots at this point in the list between like... 44 and 38 is just which way the wind is blowing sometime. And one thing we will start to discuss more now that we've cleared the honorable mentions off the table is this idea of ranges. Of course, when I do the top 10 list at the end of every year, I try to emphasize the sort of reasonable range in my head that I'm evaluating a player at. Is this someone who, based on a high-end estimation, looks like the second or third best player in the league, and based on a low-end estimation, maybe the seventh or eighth best player? That depends on who the other players are he's competing with. It depends on the nature of the player. Some players, to me, I'm more confident in evaluating. Some players, I think, have more information, clearer archetypes. Other players play a totally unique style, and they're totally different. And you're trying to use as much apples-to-apples data as you can to figure out, like, how valuable is it to actually run around like a maniac on offense for 40 minutes when you're out there or something like that? But that can be harder. Outlying styles can be harder to evaluate. And in, in this exercise, and we'll talk about this today, that actually the shape of your career, whether you have a really flat, steady, consistent prime for 12 or 15 years, or if you have a really high peak for four or five years and then you fizzle out or you're injured, that is also going to change your range. That's going to change sort of a, what a high-end estimation does to you on a list like this. So last time we mentioned Ray Allen, he's been bumped out of the top 40 and Kevin McHale have been bumped out of the top 40. I mean, these things happen. You know, better players come along. But one of the players, Cody, who has done the bumping here is someone that in the last five years, going back through a lot of history and doing multiple projects, doing the greatest peak series, doing another kind of series like this that's coming in the future, you and I both have taken a ton of time to study films on old teams. And one of the teams we got really into this year was the Bad Boys Pistons from the late 80s and none other than their leader, Isaiah Thomas. And he now, to me, based on all these reevaluations, makes the list. He is now in the top 40. So I think after the Greatest Peak series, Isaiah may have been 
maybe the first player that I came back and like, this is going to be a guy that I really intensely study. It's a guy that I hear a lot of things about, you know, some of the old heads are like, no, I say as like top two point guard of all time. There's no way you're going to tell me otherwise. But other people are like, he's actually a little bit overrated for X, Y, Z reasons. And when I started going into it, Ben, I feel like I just started sending you clip after clip where I'm like, are, are you seeing this? Like, is this a real thing that somebody's doing in 1985? And as, as I kept watching, I'm like, man, Ben, this guy rips. Isaiah Thomas is an awesome player. So I'm really excited that we're starting off this series with him because I think going back and forth with you, I think we have a lot to say about this guy. I, I have so much to say about this guy and about this team. And to your point, if we mentioned it last episode, if you look at like other lists, Isaiah is very often a player in the top 25. Sometimes people have him in the top 20 even of players of all time. And as we've mentioned before, criteria for these things, for these GOAT lists, the greatest of all time, they vary wildly. And and our goal here is to talk about the players and talk about their strengths and weaknesses and talk about the circumstances on teams. Some players we won't get into because nothing has really changed since the original series came out. You can just reference those old articles on backpicks. Uh, if you really want to wait, you could wait for more videos to come out on these players because we will hit most of these players in videos as we continue to do historical series going forward. But Isaiah has neither an article. And as of right now, um, that's a teaser. As of right now, there's no video on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel about Isaiah either. And so, you know, even just looking at like the way I evaluate his peak, I didn't change his peak that much, Cody. Uh, I liked his peak the first time through. He's just not a guy with great longevity relative to the kind of stature that he has. And we'll talk about the two Pistons championship teams in a second. But Isaiah, as you mentioned, 1985, like the offensive juice that he brings and the criticism, the number one criticism that has weighed him down as basketball has has gained more knowledge, added more data, more stats, more analytics, all the data ball revolution is that he's inefficient. He's very inefficient from the floor. His true shooting percentage as a shooter is usually like what around league average or negative. It's, it's, it's not sexy looking. And when you watch the tape, one thing that really jumps out to me is his shot selection can get a little uh, a little sideways, let's say. He takes some shots that are hard shots, and they're aggressive, and he constantly is manipulating his body in the air and taking these little up-and-unders in traffic and things like that. And he hits some, right? He's a, he's a good, tough shot maker, especially, my goodness, for someone who's like, what, six foot one? Just extraordinary, an extraordinary tough shot maker uh, for someone with that frame. But... You never really watch an Isaiah game and go, oh, Isaiah had 36 in this game because he was like 12 for 15 from the field or because he just had wide open shots and his three-point ball was working. It never really feels like that. It's more about what you said, carving up the defense, getting into the paint, really incredible finisher for his size. Again, not looking for contact like we talked about a couple episodes ago, the difference in the way the game is officiated. Isaiah may be one of the best ever at getting into the paint, getting into the traffic jam of the 1980s that was the lane, and then twisting and turning and spinning and flipping and reversing and finding a way to finish in traffic. He's he's maybe the definitive player ever at going up and then ducking under. A, so he jumps 
and then like a Mario character ducks while he's in the air to avoid contact and scoop up and finish on the other side and finding little creases like that. So really a dynamic offensive player. And I haven't even mentioned his best attribute, which is by far his passing. So, man, I, the, the play, you said, I literally had it in my mind's eye. I think it's in a 1990 finals game against the Blazers where he literally just like contorts to uh, through just a couple of trees in the paint. And I, I think the thing that combines with this dynamic driving, which I want to touch on in a second, is the fact that he pairs that with what I consider to be a pretty developed mid-range shot, which, you know, I didn't have much film on his rookie season. By at least 1983, his second season, I thought that mid-range jumper was pretty dialed in. And it, he's taking this in a lot of different ways. I think he ran a few off-ball routes. Like, he wasn't completely, like, on-ball all the time. He could get off-ball, hit some catch-and-shoot jumpers. But he also had this dialed in with his pull-up jumpers, and he was able to create a little bit of separation and get it over, you know, guards and big men and switches alike. And I think that's something is really impre- that's really impressive, is seeing this guy that can come in with that skill being so developed. But beyond that, Ben, you say getting into the paint... Going back and watching all those all um, older teams and older players, his handle blew me away for the time because you did not see guys dribbling the way he did to me when I saw everything. And I'm sure there's there's somebody else in history, but I don't know if you can count three other players in NBA history that had like a more revolutionary handle at the time than he did because he is just knifing through guys he can he can blow by guys after doing some dribbling tricks he can hit someone off a a ball screen and things like that so i think that combination of being able to to showcase like ahead of its time handle with a really solid mid-range jumper right out of the gate combines for a player that had a lot to play with from the beginning of his career the off-ball thing is actually a big deal to me because depending on the era of pistons basketball you watch He did come off the baseline. He did move it, get it to other guards, get it to other players. You know, they, for better or worse, ran a lot of offense at one point in time through Adrian Dantley and things like that. So so he could get off ball. And and specifically, there's one specific thing about his off ball game that really jumps out to me. You mentioned just shooting, curling off off a pick and coming up from the baseline and hitting a jumper and all that. But... He was really good at attacking closeouts. We talked about that body control. Short little floaters would touch as a way to finish. And so what the Pistons would do, like this is the one that's seared into my mind. Isaiah would be at the top dribbling. A lot of the offense in the 80s came up from the baseline up back toward the ball. Let's say Joe Dumars comes off the curl this time. Isaiah hits Dumars. Isaiah's defender has to sag back into the middle of the paint to help on that curl because Dumars is coming around to pick. Dumars, without dribbling, maybe one dribble max, kicks it right back to Isaiah. Now you've created a micro advantage. Isaiah's man is recovering back to him. Isaiah is phenomenal at attacking that mini closeout because of the handle that you talked about, the quickness, the agility, the body control. And then he can get into, if he gets by that defender, short little mid-range, acrobatic finish at the basket for a foul or a layup, Or, as I said, his best ability was his passing. Lay down passing, some kickouts if needed, although they weren't as common back then. Uh, But just a really, really good passer. On the ball, dribbling, running pick and roll, pick and pop with uh, Bill Lambeer. Out in transition, a fantastic passer. And so the, the totality of that, let's leave defense aside for a second. The totality of that is already probably like an all NBA, like a really, really good 
basketball player at the time. And you get the combination of all these skills, and that's what makes him so deadly is, again, this isn't a guy that, like, when Dumars creates that micro, you know, causes somebody to go off, creates that opportunity for Isaiah, you have to recover back to Isaiah because he's going to hit that mid-range jumper. I mean, this is a really good mid-range jump shooter. This isn't a guy that's hitting it at, you know, I, I didn't track it. I think that would be a really interesting study to go back and track how accurate it was because by I, my by my eye, it was really deadly. And, and besides, like you said, I think a weird uh, strand throughout his whole career is it never seemed like he dialed back those kind of circus shots he took more. Like, if he got into the paint and, and there were a couple guys in the way, he'd try and, you know, like you said, double clutch it or force some really tough contested shots. Uh, but at the same time, even late into the 80s and even like that th- those 90 finals, like I said, it didn't seem like he really lost that burst. Like, this is a guy that I also considered to be uh, somebody that I considered to be a really sneaky athlete like honestly he's like the purest sneaky athlete i've ever seen i think there's like a famous jump ball that he ends up winning um i forgot who it's against but it was like minute bowl or something like that but even in like 89 they're playing against the bucks and he comes swooping in from the corner and throws a putback dunk down and you're just watching like excuse me like where, where did this come from so that burst he had pretty much all the way from the early 80s to the late 80s essentially so uh this is a guy that had this this strong offensive package for a long time but the one thing that i'm thinking of ben is you you started this whole thing off saying that you always liked his prime okay and so i think the the most natural question that i have from that then is why did he move up then? Like, did you did you like these kind of early 80s years more? Did you actually sneakily like the end of his career in the early 90s? Like, what's going on, Ben? This is a great question. Now, you're, now we're getting to the meat of it. There's three things I want to talk about here with Isaiah. One of them is his defense. We'll get to that in a second. The second is his playoff performance. And specifically, just in my process over the last few years getting better playoff data and more consistent historical playoff data and really focusing in on that more with certain players like this. So there are things with his defense I want to talk about. There are things with the playoffs I want to talk about. But the third thing that I think we should start with is that this bad boys Pistons team, Cody, it it shouldn't make sense to casual fans. It shouldn't make sense if you're not paying attention. Like when you turn them on, at their heyday, certainly their two championship seasons in 1989 and 1990, but even in 1988 when they make the finals and Isaiah injures his ankle at the end of the series and it's very close and they lose in game seven in the final minute. It's like they could have, they almost could have won three titles in a row and they were very good and competitive in 1987. So the, the three or four year period of that team at their heyday, you turn them on, they'll play the Celtics, Bird, Parrish, McHale. And they'll just feel like most of the time they're a little bit better. How are they doing this? They'll play the Lakers. Magic, Worthy, Kareem, Byron Scott. Doesn't matter. We, we're, gonna, we're the Pistons. We're going to do our thing. They play the Bulls. Jordan, Young Pippen. Doesn't matter. We're going to do our thing. They are not a team that you line up and go, oh, it's these two MVPs. It's, it's Durant and Curry. It's LeBron and Wade. It's just... Even Isaiah is the guy who has been given the mantle of the team. And I think because they almost don't make sense, it actually is predictable in a way that people have gone to Isaiah and said they must have been winning because Isaiah was as good as Jordan or Magic or Bird. 
You know, he's sort of in this tier of player. I mean, heck, everyone else has all the championships at that time, right? Like the Celtics, the Lakers, the Bulls, and who else fits in there? The Pistons. Isaiah must be at that level. So I've never thought Isaiah was at that level. I don't think he's at that level. Some of that has to do with his size and, you know, inability to make 43% of his three-pointers. Some of that has to do with defense that we'll talk about. He's not going out there playing like all defensive uh, or defensive player of the year caliber two-way impact. And I think a lot of this starts with this bad boys team that we need to talk about. Um, you, You and I have seen a lot of this team this year specifically they have to be one of the deepest teams in NBA history. And the way they fit together is absolutely fascinating. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. I think the main guys that come up when you talk about this Bad Boys team. So obviously you get Isaiah, you get Joe Dumars, you know, Bill Ambeer. Of course, Dennis Rodman, but it goes so much deeper. I think even a guy, Ben, that we've been going back and forth on, I think we could make this whole episode about John Sally, because every time I watch, every time you watch, I feel like we're going back like, did you see John Sally today? And when you're talking about just like the perfect build for an NBA player, a guy that was just designed to play basketball, John Sally is right there, and he's always doing stuff like that. And that's just five guys. I felt like when we mapped it out, this is a team that was solidly like 10 deep, of guys of not that's just like eating up minutes, but 10 deep of guys that could go out there and give you legitimate minutes in a legitimate role that's built into this system that they're running. And so that was the thing that really stood out about the bad boys. They start James, James Buddha Edwards at center, I think for his post-up game, because it was, requ- it was written in law. It was, it was, it was on a stone and slabbed into the earth that you had to run offense through your center at some point in the game in the 1980s. So James Edwards was by far the best post-up player of these options. I guess Lambeer is close, but Lambeer also started as well. So they start Edwards and Lambeer, both pretty good defenders. Lambeer in his own right, uh, a very good bruising physical paint protector and one of the earliest dudes to try to take charges as a form of rim protection. And then on offense, Lambeer's gift as a player of that time was his pick and pop game. I mean, this dude could stroke it. You mentioned the 1990 finals. I think it was game two of the 1990 finals where he hits like five or six threes in the second half or something, including one to tie the game in the final seconds from like 27 feet on a shot that, honestly, it kind of looks like a Larry Bird shot. Like, they just throw it into Lambeer on the out-of-bounds, and he's like, I'm just going to shoot this 30-footer in someone's face and make it, and then we're going to go back to the huddle, and the game is tied. Lambeer was his own thing, especially for that era as a stretch big. And then you get to the bench, and I've texted you this many times. They probably should have just been starting Sally and Rodman. They're two bench players. Rodman's a defensive player of the year one of the more versatile defenders in NBA history. 
And John Sally, I want to write a petition somewhere. John Sally, if you're listening to this, let's come on the show and we'll talk about the grievance. How did John Sally never make an all-defensive team? It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. Rick Mahorn, another Pistons player, his own teammate, made all-defensive teams as like this big physical bruiser. And I think that was because people were more into man defense at the time and also him embodying the physicality of the bad boys Pistons. But John Sally is a ridiculous defender. All of this is to say, Cody, we're only talking about the bigs. We haven't even gotten to Mark Aguirre or Adrian Dantley. Like there are other players here. Um, Vinnie Johnson off the bench in the backcourt kind of gave them a three-headed small monster with Dumars, Isaiah, and Vinnie. This was a really, really deep team. They were phenomenal defensively. That was their strength. They needed enough offensive juice, but it wasn't like Isaiah was Allen Iverson out there. He didn't have to do everything on offense. Dumars ran offense before Dantley left. They ran offense through Dantley. This was an incredibly balanced team, and I think it breaks people's brain to think that they didn't have like an MVP-level play. This is just a great team period, full stop, regardless of how good you think their best player is. And I think the the, the interesting part about that is it, it's, almost, uh, it's almost a positive for Isaiah that he's able to fit into this without necessarily being like an all-time level player, right? Like they don't need an all-time level player, but they need somebody like Isaiah that's able to build into this team concept and build, bring in whatever skills that he has to all of this and coexist with this eight, nine, ten-man rotation. So, yeah, I believe that fully yeah and and then the the defense this is one thing to me that I've changed on with Isaiah he is not the driver of this defense the driver of this defense is Rodman and Sally and Lambeer and the other guys that we mentioned um but Isaiah's defense is kind of sneaky good that's how I would describe it it's sneaky good. And defense is one of those things that you really need the film to have pop. It's hard to convey on radio. But he has really active hands. And he's pretty quick. And he works hard. And he anticipates actions. I mean, I think just in one of the playoff runs, it might have been 89 or 90. They all blur together at this point. Just in like one series, he kept deflecting or stealing the entry pass over and over and over again just to the post. And that's kind of high-level stuff. That's quick reflexes with your hands. It's anticipation and reading the action. And he would do it by flicking his hand up in the passing lane. But he also did the Larry Bird. And the Larry Bird is when your man that you're guarding throws a bounce pass to the post-up man. And instead of the post-up man catching it, you steal it. You actually slide back as he throws it, and you catch it like you're going in the post. And I saw Isaiah do this along with all the other stuff. And that's actually the biggest change for me that's moved him up a little bit is specifically his late career defense. And I connect it to Steph Curry and what we've seen in Steph Curry in the last few seasons, especially in 2022, putting on more muscle, really just saying, I'm not going to be picked on on defense. And then he has that awareness, the quickness, all those soft athleticism skills that both Isaiah and Curry have that you alluded to. And so I actually think Isaiah Thomas, you know, you, we might disagree on this because you've, you've mentioned that you might disagree with me on this. I think his best defensive years were at the end of the 80s when he kind of put this all together 
in this defensive context. Whereas when he was younger, he was still a little bit softer, a little bit more fluid out there and just bouncing around on defense. And the offense was the big part of the game. I'm going to get to that in a second because I don't necessarily know if I disagree with you, but I think it's a point of ambivalence where I'm like, I'm not 100% sure. But I think watching Isaiah, the, the thing that just hurts him the most on defense is his size. You know, he's not a very big guy at like muscle wise, height wise. There's a couple plays where, you know, and this is Michael Jordan we're talking about, where Jordan basically just ignores him and does what he's going to do, and Isaiah might as well not be there. But I think that Isaiah's defensive motor is actually pretty high, and he's constantly giving it. He's He can scoot around the court really well. He, he dives for loose balls. There's, there's one specific play. I don't remember what year, what game. Obviously, it's against the Lakers because, uh, like you said, they, they enter down to Kareem. He goes down to, to help, to double against Kareem, strips him saves it from going out of bounds, and then yeah. someone kicks it to him, and he immediately on the catch throws this perfect outlet pass. And it's like a four seconds of just like, this is incredible defensive awareness, motor, and immediate offensive awareness. And I think all of that goes together of just this guy that is just like so locked in. And it, it, it really contributed and I think helped him out a little bit, even though he was, he was hamstrung a little bit by a size. But I think the question that I want to ask about the defense, because I wasn't so sure. I was like, I don't know, Ben. I see him really lock in at times in the early 80s. I can't really tell if he's actually better in the late 80s. And I think the thing that's tough for me to separate, and I want to ask you how you do it, how do you separate Isaiah from the much stronger defensive context that he was in in those bad boys Pistons versus the teams that he played with in the early 80s? Well, I don't think it's possible to separate in the sense that if his teammates and if that environment are kind of spurring him on, we can only judge what he does on the court. I mean, one of the trickiest things about evaluating players, regardless of what your criteria is, is this dirty business of what motivates them in real life and how their circumstance affects that motivation. I don't mean how their circumstance affects whether their team makes the playoffs or wins 60 games or wins accolades. I mean... If you're Kevin Garnett and you're in Minnesota for like 19 straight years and nothing good is happening, it might be hard to have your motor dialed up to 110% when your knee starts to get sore. Whereas when you get traded to the Celtics, and I'm just using him, there's uh, numerous other examples, all of a sudden you are not only motivated again, but you're in a position in practice, in film room, in training camp to build things differently in a fresh way. This, I think this affects everyone in real life. Anyone has a job, a career. You change something, and it can change your motivation. I don't, know how, I don't know how we separate that. So I fall back on what I see on the film or what I see in data, what happens on the court. And for me, I see Isaiah, basically, he's a little older, he's a little sturdier, he's a little physically stronger, he's probably a little wilier, he's a little craftier. And if his team brings that out in him, that's fine. I give him the credit for improving. Just like we saw with Curry and Golden State. Like, you could ask the same question in 10 years. You could go, well, how do we know in 2016 that Curry couldn't have done the same things defensively if the if the circumstances weren't presented in a different order? Maybe, maybe Golden State loses. Maybe he plays somewhere else and they lose because he got picked on by James Harden with, you know, switch and roll, uh, pick and roll switch hunting or something like that. And then he changes his defense prematurely. But like all those things can happen. I just don't know how we actually tackle any of those kind of what ifs versus look at what Isaiah is actually doing on the court. And that, that to me is the biggest difference in the evaluation along with the last thing we're going to talk about, which is the playoffs. But 
thinking like, I don't really change how I see his peak from like 1985, 1986. I'm actually not even sure that's his best season anymore. I just think he carries this level of play right through the end of the 80s. It just looks different. It looks different because it's a little more defense as he does get a little bit slower athletically as he gets to the end of the decade. And then the team around him changes and because such a more balanced team. I mean, Joe Dumars runs a ton of on-ball action and starts the offense for them. Vinnie Johnson does the same thing when he's in the game. It's just a very different looking team. But Cody, I've teased this last thing long enough. Um, Isaiah Thomas is one of the all-time improvers statistically in the playoffs. Did I say that as horribly as possible? He's one of the all-time improvers. Uh, you're good with language. What's what's a better way to say that? There isn't. He's one of the all-time improvers. That's literally the best way you could say it. Uh, he's one of the all-time improvers when it comes to the postseason. So just to put some statistical context on this, we have our own box plus minus model that we've referenced many times, which is based on the box score. And from 1980, we just start 1984. 1984, he improves by almost one point in offensive box plus minus. In 1985, he improves by 1.1 points. This is from regular season to playoffs. 1986, just a small improvement. And now here we go, the big stuff. 1987 through 1990, when the Pistons change around him, Isaiah doesn't have the regular season sexy numbers anymore, but it comes out in the playoffs. He goes plus 2.2 points in the 1987 postseason. So his offensive box plus minus improves by more than two points. In 1988, it improves by almost a point. In 1989, it improves by almost a point. In 1990, it improves by almost two points. He does this for his entire career, and he especially does it on the backside of that prime, 1987 to 1990. He does it. How does he do it? Um, His passing is just as good. He's more active. His scoring volume goes way up. We're talking about like a 20 point per 75 possession score in the regular season to a guy who's 22, 23, sometimes hitting 24 points per 75. And his efficiency, as I mentioned earlier, is never really like positive, but in the playoffs, he increases his volume and it's always right around neutral 20, 23 points per 75 on what comes out to league average true shooting or 25 points per 75 on plus 1% true shooting, 58% true shooting if league average is 57%. Uh, he's He's economical with the ball. He doesn't turn it over. Heck of a passer and tough shot maker, which obviously is a profile of someone who's going to get in the postseason and be more resilient against different defenses that can be thrown at him. And he not only does that in like 1985 and 1986, he not only does that in 1984, if you haven't seen this game against the Knicks in their playoff series, there's a game where Isaiah scores 16 points in the final two minutes of the game. And when you watch that, you just go, why doesn't he play like this? Why doesn't he just take threes and try to score every time? Uh, And that largely carries through into 1989 and into 1990. Those are the big differences for me, feeling more comfortable about the backside of his career and feeling more comfortable about his sneaky good defense. And frankly, I think he would be even higher on the list given those things, except he has a big injury in 1992, and that's basically the end of his 
meaningful value for the rest of his career. So I think he's he kind of falls in that same camp with other like 80 stars or early 80 70 stars that their career isn't necessarily long, but it feels like the vast majority of their career like fell within their prime. Like Isaiah was playing at a very high level for a very high percentage of the amount of time he was actually in, in the NBA. Whereas you see some of these players that might be playing 18, 19 year careers where they have their what, seven, eight year peak. And then, you know, the, the, uh, I'm not, I'm not coming at any players, but somebody like Vince Carter, for instance, that tails off quite significantly and plays multiple more years, but not necessarily at a level that's even close to what his peak would have been. No. And to that point, um, I tried to again run the, eight-year, kind of what an eight-year prime ranking would look like for me based on the what we just talked about, based on the season-by-season season evaluations of this player. And Isaiah is top 35 all-time for me there as well. So this is a really nice, healthy prime. This prime is good enough to move him from the honorable mentions up to, I have him slotted at number 39 now on the list. And just as a reminder, what that really means is if I go... A more optimistic direction with the evaluations, he could go up to number 31. There's a group that jumps up to 30 that we'll talk about in a couple episodes, uh, or actually maybe even maybe even next episode we'll get to them. Uh, and then he could go back into the honorable mention group as well. So when you're at this point in your career, to me, if you come along and you're like, Ben, I have Isaiah 33rd, I have Isaiah 43rd, we're basically talking the exact same thing. So you, ju- you just gave a range between... What did you say, like 31-ish? 31, 31 to 47, I think, the way the list plays out. Okay, so 31, 47, he ends up at 39. When you, when you end up with a range like that, how, how do you ultimately decide where to place a player? Like Isaiah Thomas, why did he end up at 39 as opposed to 38 or 40? Like, and I know you, you don't necessarily want to quibble too much about the, the single... Uh, the single distance from these rankings. Yeah, I don't like it. I don't care about the single number. I, I forget it the second we finish recording. S- somebody does, though, out there, Ben. Somebody does. So how, how do you land on, on 39? How, what differentiates him between 38 and 40? That's just the amount of uh, value that his, his uh, season-by-season estimations have accrued, basically. He's just got a little bit more than the guys behind him and a little bit more than the guys... Uh, ahead of him or did I get that a little bit more than the guys behind him and a little bit less than the guys uh ahead of him that's that's basically it but in terms of trying to corral a range that is again I'm not going to change anyone else for simplicity I'm just going to say Isaiah on offense he looks like he's like an all NBA to a high all NBA offensive player right okay that checking that difference between the all NBA and the high all NBA and on defense going like, okay, where is he's like a solid to, he's like an above average, solid to above average. That range just moves you up a little year by year, especially when you've got this nice six or seven year prime chunk, that's going to put you to the top of essentially what kind of looks like a group. And then you could do the opposite for the, for the uh, low end evaluation. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix.
it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. A little more color on those Pistons teams and why we think of them as an egalitarian team. In 1988, Adrian Dantley misses 13 games. The Pistons actually get better without him in those 13 games. They play at a 62-win pace. The offense gets a little worse, and the defense explodes, probably because they started Dennis Rodman over Dantley. But what's interesting is that Isaiah's numbers jump up, and it's really the sort of biggest statistical spike, at least in the regular season, that we see in the second half of the 80s once Detroit started to add more talent. You know, when they were younger, they had this Kelly Tripuca and Bill Lambeer kind of offense next to Isaiah. And then they bring in the players that we've mentioned along with uh, Dantley. And then Dantley, of course, was traded out for Mark Aguirre. So in 1988, Isaiah, his box plus minus jumps up a little bit in those 13 games. It's a small sample, just 13 games. But the thing I want to focus on is that his offensive load, the estimate of how much he's doing out there, scoring and playmaking and driving offense, goes from about 42% of the possessions to about 48. It's a nice little bump. His passing efficiency looks better. His scoring efficiency looks better. His scoring volume goes up a little bit. And I think it addresses, like, what would Isaiah have looked like if he were on a team that were a little less balanced? How much could he actually carry individually himself? So I think he was sacrificing some numbers to fit in, as you said, to fit in with this team and be effective. But they were never a great offensive team in the playoffs from 1984 to 1987. They were quite good, like top 20% playoff offense if you compare it to their opponents' regular season defenses. And then in the last couple of years, 1988 to 1991, maybe like a little bit above average. It was really a defensively driven team. And as I said, Isaiah and Dantley were often running offense. Joe Dumars could run offense. Vinnie Johnson could run offense. Incidentally, in 1989 and 1990, the Pistons play 20 games without Joe Dumars, where Isaiah is playing. They play at a 61-win pace with Isaiah and Joe. That goes down to a 54-win pace without Dumars. We, we see these signals on the early 2000s Pistons, on some of the Celtics teams with Garnett and Pierce and Allen on the early 70s Knicks, these kind of these these balanced egalitarian teams, you know, you take off one of the players and it doesn't matter who it is. The team gets a little bit worse or the synergy isn't quite as good. So they were they were quite good without Joe Dumars. But the key there is in 1989 and 1990, Isaiah's load actually goes down when Dumars misses those 20 games. So they weren't necessarily eating into each other or competing for possessions. I just don't think at that point Isaiah was ever really going to ramp up to the crazy kind of heliocentric style weapons we see today. In 1991, Isaiah himself finally misses a huge chunk of time. He misses 32 games with a broken wrist. 
and he actually had this wrist was actually bothering him for they say nine months there's one quote i found that says nine months but he just had a very high threshold of pain and he can go on he was finally shut down for what looked like the season in january here's the news report isaiah thomas had bones in his right hand fused today and the surgeon who performed the operation said it is unlikely the Pistons guard will play again this season. I suppose if the wrist is real solid and the bone is real sturdy, he could play sometime in May. But I'm a little nervous setting him loose on a basketball court. That's what his doctor, Kirk Watson, at the time said. That's relevant because Isaiah did come back at the end of 1991 in April, played in the playoffs, played okay in the playoffs, but he just was really the never never the same player. And then a few seasons later, his career basically ended with an Achilles tear in 1994. I do have one more note here that we should mention. I, I have him as fragile. And I think that makes sense given how his career ended. And really after like, ni- like after 1990, there's a pretty, pretty big drop off. And then he has what essentially is sort of the career ending injury, although he hangs on for a couple uh, more difficult post-prime seasons but he's always got like a hamstring wrapped like a back that's sore an ankle that's sore it's kind of amazing that he makes it through these playoff runs mostly unscathed he like picks up injuries but doesn't actually miss much time probably most famously in the 1988 finals where he rolls the ankle in game six then drops 25 in the third quarter it's been a while since I've seen that exact one. I think 25 in the third quarter and then comes back and plays game seven valiantly on a hobbled ankle. But, you know, he's hobbled. He doesn't have the same burst, penetration, lateral movement. And the Pistons team is just so darn good. They they almost win the game anyway. I, I mean, you know, does that change stuff? Is that an interesting what if? If they had won three in a row and knocked off the Lakers, how would we think about that team? How would we think about... Isaiah, I don't know, but they were right there. To me, it's like the exact same quality team, whether they scored four more points in a game seven, they were right there from 1988 to 1990. Yeah, it feels like there's a lot of those kinds of coin flip moments in NBA history. So it, it's always tough to go back and correct like that. But yeah, Thomas, and I feel like it's by the nature of what I was playing. Like he was just like, he was in it. He was just diving all over. There's a couple of times where I've seen him like leap the couple first rows to get a, a loose ball or something like that. I mean, this is a guy that was just kind of like Iverson, just like didn't care about his body. He's just like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm out there. I'm going to kill myself to win. He's taken contact. He's on the floor. As I said, especially in the late 80s bad boys years, more physical defensively. And you like he'll get up in you. That's one of the things I really... So, so to answer your question earlier, I don't see him doing that in 1985. But in 1989, he will get up in you in key moments and take contact and force contact and try to go after the ball and take a charge and land on his back and hurt his back and then come back. And then you're watching a series for the first time. You bring up an old game and they're like, Isaiah Thomas will play tonight. But of course, he has the ankle, knee, elbow and lower back soreness. He comes out there, half the time he's limping, and then he just blows by he's, someone and gets a layup and limps back down. Why does he and Bill Russell are in competition for having their left <laughs> hamstring wrapped most in an NBA game? Let's move on. Uh, we skip number 40 on this list. Number 40, he was number 39 last time, so essentially no change. Um, he is Clyde the Glide Drexler from the Portland Trailblazers and then winning a championship with the Houston Rockets. So he's 40 here in this career valuation. Looking at other lists, he's often in the 40s or around number 50. 
So I don't know how much uh, change is there. I don't even know how much we want to talk about Drexler other than to say I had an epiphany with him catching the Blazers on some of these old games. The epiphany for me, Cody, is that Clyde Drexler, he's really an offensive number two. He's not really like a classical offensive number one. And this weird narrative thing happens in 1992 where he kind of challenges Michael Jordan for the MVP. They get to the finals. It's billed as this mano a mano thing of the two best players, um, you know. And yet, when you really study this team, I mean, we just talked about the Pistons, but the Blazers, Terry Porter was kind of like almost a 1A offensively. They had a lot of balance, a lot of transition, a lot of speed. And Drexler's skill set, which we can get into in a second if you want, it, it's more like an offensive number two. And I think growing up, Clyde the Glide Drexler, 1992 finals, 27 points per game, all that stuff, he's kind of described as this singular offensive force. But I don't think that was his style of play at all. And I ended up being a little sort of more solidified in how I viewed him as like, this is an offensive number two who's also a sneaky, disruptive defensive player. Like, he's kind of a playmaker on defense. He's got his warts on defense, but he also he protects the rim. He's a big, sweeping body. Boy, does he jump in passing lanes. He has active hands. He, this, this forces the defense to offense exchange that gets him out in transition that he's so good at. So he's one of these guys that, like, if you're making all-time peaks he wouldn't be in my top 25 or probably top 40 peaks or whatever. But a steady 10-year decade of this type of play where he fits in all kinds of high-level teams, that turns out to be a really good career. I'm glad you brought up the defense here. And he kind of has the build. We've talked about this before. He's got like the thick-legged build of a a solid defensive guy. This The thick-legged individual. The thick-legged individual. It it feels like the Drew Holiday's... The Clyde Drexler's, Marcus Smart, when you have that build, you're just going to be a good defensive player. But the fact that he could levy his vertical athleticism, too, to protect the rim a bit. The aforementioned James Edwards in the, the 1990s finals. There's one where Edwards gets in the paint and he throws up a hook shot. I don't. I, I slowed it down and watched this play like 50 times. I still can't tell if he blocks it. But Drexler comes from the weak side and just goes straight up to contest it. And it's incredible. When you see him, you're like, God, that's a dude that's got to be 6'11", but he's not. This is a, what, 6'7", 6'6", type he's of guard? He's big. Yeah, he's probably 6'7", yeah. He is, but he's he's got a little bit of rim protection chops. Not that he's necessarily going to slot down and do that, but he can uh, he can do that once in a while. I think he had a chase down block against Magic Johnson at some point. Um, he was good at targeting the ball with his hands, like you said, off ball with the blocks, things like that. So I, I, I liked his defense, and I think that interesting dynamic between him and Porter was fascinating, because both of them just screamed a guy that needed to have one other person that could go up another role. Both of them were just like, I want to be the complimentary offensive player. And it it it, it just showed in moments. I love both of them. So Ben, this, this team is awesome. I think I told you that if I were to make a top five favorite team of all time to watch, these like early 90s Blazers would probably be on it. They are just such a fun team to watch. Let's wrap up this episode with a few more players in the 30s, and then in episode three, we'll come back and make our way down the list further and uh, talk about a couple more interesting players in detail. But at number 38, these are players with basically no change. Um, I have seen some of them play a lot more. I've had a lot more old film that I've been fortunate enough to collect and see. And so Elgin Baylor has been someone that I've seen a lot more of in the last few years compared to five years ago. But I don't really have any material changes 
about Elgin. He was 37th last time on the list. He's 38th this time. His peak, I think, is pretty good. It's not quite... It's really hard for me, Cody, to see him as like a strong, solid MVP level peak player. Um, I think the difficulty with Elgin is that it's hard to gauge his defense, not only just because you want a ton of film to gauge like a 6'5 wing slash power forward defense, but back in those days, individual defense and standing out individually on defense seems to me to be a little bit harder in that space, in that I'm a two, I'm a three, maybe I guard some wings, maybe I chase them around. Like, I want to give him value for his defensive rebounding because he's such a big defensive rebounder, but that's also a thing I feel is contextual. The Lakers never had really many big men. It's nice that he can go in there and help on the glass. Rebounding was more of a thing 50 or 60 years ago when just everyone was packed in the paint jostling for position, but I don't know how much value that rebounding conveys. So again, because Baylor is a player like some of the guys we've talked about with a relatively short, healthy career, if you're unfamiliar with Elgin Baylor's career, came in the league in 1959. 1961-1962, just monster score. Great futuristic player. If you've never seen him play, one of the first high flyers. I mean, you mentioned Clyde Drexler. I mean, Baylor is going to the wing, going to the rim with finger rolls, scoop shots, exciting dunks in transition. He was a good passer. Um, and then had the reputation of being like a solid defender, but injures his knee badly in 1965, has, I believe, an injury before that as well. So he only gets like half a decade at most at this level. And then the second half of the 60s is a more limited version. I still think a very good player, by the way, but not someone that I've, I mean, I, I have a hard time seeing the argument for him as like sniffing MVP level player in the second half of the 1960s. And what's so fascinating about Baylor, he's often ranked in the top 25 in ranking publications. I think USA Today's top 75 had him at 19th. Uh, Bill Simmons, his update on the Book of Basketball series that he's done has him as 18th. Basically, everyone has him in the top 20, 18, 19, or 20. That's very common kind of ranking for Elgin Baylor. And if you go back and look at MVP finishes, Cody, I think it makes sense. Because in the 60s, he's finishing in the top five in most valuable player award voting in the second half of the decade, even after this knee injury, right? And to me, that is essentially him gaining all of the greatness of Jerry West. Like it's being it's being given to Baylor and people don't realize it's Jerry West. So so here are Baylor's MVP finishes in his career. 1959 he finishes 3rd. 1960 he finishes 5th. 1961 he finishes 3rd. 1962 he finishes 4th and in 1963 he finishes 2nd. I think for the most part we could quibble with a couple players here or there, but top five player in the league and that quality of play he brought in the first half of the decade. I think that all makes sense. But then the second half of the decade, he gets injured. He goes away from the MVP voting starting in 1965. He doesn't even make an all NBA team in 1966. He's back on the all NBA team in 1967. 
1968, he finishes third in MVP voting. That is entirely a result of Butch Van Bredikoff coming in with a guard-heavy Princeton system and generating what looks like the best offense in league history up until that point. Jerry West was the main cog in that system. When Jerry West was out, the Lakers played it like a low 40 win pace. When Jerry West was in, he missed 31 games that year. When Jerry West was in, the Lakers played at a 59 win pace. That is monster impact. And if their offense has any correlation with that at all, meaning it's super unlikely that it's all defense, but even if it's just only a little offense, that would make the Lakers like about an average-ish offensive team without Jerry West and the best offense ever with Jerry West. And because of the success of that team and because West missed 31 games and no one knew this at the time about offensive efficiencies and no one realized that the Lakers were so good with West and so good without West and that Van Bredikoff's system was more futuristic with all these guards and ball handlers and the space of the Princeton style at the time opened up the lane brought the bigs out to the top, made the fact that Mel Counts was a jump-shooting big a weapon instead of a detriment. All that got transferred to Baylor, and he finishes third in MVP, but it's, it's a complete massive reach. And so I think, for me, I'm left with a player who I really like the first half of his career in the 60s, and the second half is pretty good too, but it's been moved up in such a way that instead of saying, this guy's... 30-second best player, the 42nd best player, whatever. People are like, I got to have Elgin Baylor in my top 15 or 20. That's the disconnect for me. So, man, it's just a lot of things that one could respond Sorry. to. Sorry. No, that's <laughs> fine. That was great. But the one thing I actually hung on, and I'm like, I want to I ask about this, is about his defensive ability, his defensive valuation. And I think to me, it does come back to the rebounding part of it, because I think rebounding seems to be the elusive conversation. And it seems like even today, like ultimately the value of a rebound is A, team route rebounding, but B, are you able to grab contested defensive rebounds? So I think my question, I have two a two-part question on this. Number one, do you think that the value of contested defensive rebounds has remained about the same throughout NBA history? And number two, were there actually more rebounds that were contested earlier in the NBA that made defensive rebounding at volume more uh, move the needle more for a player's defensive yeah. impact? I don't know if the value of a contested rebound has changed much. That feels like a much harder question to answer. But the other part of the question is easy to answer. There were way more contested re- rebounds in the earlier days of the NBA. And in the 80s and 90s, I would say rebounding had a little bit more value. But in the 60s, it probably had the most value because you often had a ton of guys in the paint. There were so many misses, just so many misses. And if you were overpowered, outmatched, outsized, whatever, you didn't have the verticality and you lost rebounds that way over and over again, that's going to add up over the course of the game. So I don't think it was as extreme as people thought back in the day, just because it was one of the track stats. It was like points, rebounds, and assists, the holy grail of basketball stats. And they would say like, you know, this guy, look at, he averages 20 rebounds and this guy averages 15 rebounds. He must be much better. I don't think it's as simple as that. But as far as like actually thinking about rebounding value, especially on the defensive end, as it pertains to finishing a possession, 
closing off a possession. I think that's got to be the period where it was the most valuable. And it's probably meaningful enough that, you know, if you could demonstrate to me that like Elgin's presence kept his team top three in the league, there are only nine or 12 teams depending on the year or whatever, but let's say one of the three best teams in the league on the defensive glass versus like ninth, that difference with all the misses probably gives him a little more meaningful defensive juice. I don't know. Like I said, I try to give him a little credit for the rebounding, but I do think there's a range where I don't have a great feel for how impactful these guys are defensively at that time. Um, another player like this is John Havlicek. We'll we'll hit John Havlicek um, in, a, in an upcoming episode, but he's like has this reputation as constantly being an all-league defender. We have enough games where we can break down some of his defense. How valuable... Is that defense exactly? I don't know. Here's the thing I want to say, though. Elgin Baylor, often in the top 20. John Havlicek, in these publications, often in the top 20 or 25. We know we've mentioned Jerry West. Will Chamberlain played with Baylor. Bill Russell played in this era. And then Oscar Robertson also played in this era. Cody, it's hard for me to believe, regardless of your criteria, unless you're like a basketball originalist, and then in that case, I'm going to need to see some more George Mike and I'm going to need to see some guys from like before the NBA was formed in the 1950s. I'm going to need to see Bobby McDermott somewhere or some name that nobody's ever heard of. Unless that's the case, it's really hard for me to believe that six of the 20 or 25 best players ever came into the league in the late 50s or early 60s like all these players, in like a six-year... Russell came in in 57, Elgin came in in 59, Wilt came in in 60, Oscar came in in 61 off the top of my head, uh, and then Wes came in a year after that, and then Havlicek came in. Like, those six players, almost in six or seven consecutive seasons, it's hard for me to buy that those guys are six of the 25 greatest players ever, which means they have far more representation than any other period in league history. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is interesting. I don't want to get lost too much in this sauce here, but I don't necessarily know if I agree with that because to me, it feels like the NBA, I don't want to say more obscure, but definitely not at the point now when the NBA is as popular as it is, where people are building up to it, where it's just saturated with so much talent. It feels like if we're talking relative to era, there might actually be a solid chance for six or so guys to sneak in there that are just outliers in impact and are able to be that much better than their competition. So you're taking the opposite. You're, you're essentially saying because the league was so immature, it would be easier to have all the outliers come from that period. Yeah, off the top of my head, that feels like where I would lean. As, as a okay. possibility, I'm not saying that's the case, but I'm saying I th- it feels like that's more of a possibility. Well, let's say that pressure cuts in one direction. Isn't there one that cuts in the exact opposite direction, which is the more great individuals you have in a period, the harder it is by definition to be an outlier? In turn, how can, how can, let's put it this way, let's yeah, rephrase yeah, it. Yeah, okay. 
how can you all finish top three in MVP if there's six players? Like something just, I'm saying the math, it's hard to add up. It's like in boxing, if you don't have a great rival, sometimes that's used against you because you say you don't have a great rival. Or sometimes people say he doesn't have a great rival because he was an outlier and he was ahead of everyone else in the competition. There's no one to challenge him. And then you get boxers that do have rivals like Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. And whoever kind of wins the rivalry usually bumps up above his rival. And then the other guy you can put somewhere immediately right behind him in all time lists. I'm saying here in basketball, we've got, you know, 70 plus years of the NBA. From 1957 to 1963, you're going to tell me that six, all those players relative to their own era, somehow were just six of them were outliers. That's what feels weird to me. It, Am I not explaining it no, right? No, it sounds right, but I think if you're going to take a period in the NBA where that would happen, this would be the era where it happens. Like, are you saying that you think that that has a better chance of happening in, like, 1985 to 1989 versus this period of time? No, I'm saying, isn't there a definitional problem with saying you're the sixth best player in this early immature league, therefore, relative to era, we're saying that you were better than the third best player from the 2000s? I mean, it might be, depending on where the average of the NBA falls. That's what I'm saying, is we're not just talking about the, the top here. Maybe there's like a hard cap to where the outlier range is, but then once you get past these first few, maybe there's such a significant drop-off that it's kind of like this cluster up here on their own. Well, I think, ironically, the, uh, that's a good point, but I think the data shows the exact opposite, which is players today, through expansion and style of play, and we see heliocentrism, like individual players seem to be able to move the needle a ton. Whereas back in the day, because maybe because there were only nine teams. Now remember, there's only nine teams. So like a bad team back then had two all-stars. A bad team had two all-stars. And there was a cap on the number of all-stars they would let you have on a good team. But like, you know, you'd have teams that you get three or four all-stars. Uh, you got a really, really stacked team. You lose one of those players we would never expect, at least it's hard to see in the data, anything that would suggest a player leaving a 60-win team. It's hard enough to get to 60 wins, Cody, in the, in the 1960s. It's hard enough to differentiate like that. And then if a player leaves that team, dropping to like 30 wins. If anything, we see that more in the modern game. So it's, it sounds like you're not buying what I'm suggesting here, but I'm, I'm trying to suggest, A, that it doesn't make sense, and B, here are the reasons why. It's because Elgin Baylor... Elgin Baylor is riding the wings of Jerry West. All of that could be true. All of that could be true. And I think ultimately when you actually bring in what the league looks like, I agree with you. Like you go back and watch those games, a single guy isn't changing the trajectory of a team as much as we see now. But I'm, all I'm saying is that if there is a time period where you would have the most outliers, it would have been in that period versus any other period in the NBA. That's all I'm saying. Speaking of that period, number 37 is Walt Frazier, also a player uh, who came in a few years later at the end of the 60s and, of course, had his best year in the 70s. He was 33 in the original series five years ago. He is 37 now. I don't think I have any material change in the few. I mean, I don't even know if, how many new Walt games I've seen. It's not that many. Uh, and he's just always spectacular. I have him as a fairly high career player. And as a way to demonstrate that, if you look at his eight-year value in this stat, 
it is top 30 all time. It would be 27th. So I really love Walt Frazier's prime as a two-way player, just devastating defensively on the ball for that era. And then offensively, I mean, he's unique enough that I feel like we should talk about him offensively in a more historical context because of like his balance and shiftiness and spins and leans and crossovers. And he had that whole game. I mean, he was so cool that his nickname was just another name. He's like, I'm call me Clyde instead of Walt. And it fits with how he played on the floor. I want to talk about his defense for a second because he touched on it with uh, with trying to to grade out Baylor and Havlicek. And I promise I'm not going to stop and take us in all these these tangents for every player because this this series will take hundreds of hours, which may, maybe that's fine. Maybe that's OK. But when you watch him, right, Walt Frazier is awesome. Clyde Frazier is awesome. Whatever name you call him, he's awesome. And on defense, it stands out. He's just causing chaos everywhere. He's, he's, he's getting hands and passing lanes. He's he's disrupting everything, right? He's just tremendous. But the nature of defense, as you pointed out in your officiating video, the nature of especially perimeter defense is so much different from from now, right? You see guys getting getting into their their offensive players. You see Drew Holiday or Marcus Smart, the two guys I usually go to, just like physically imposing themselves on there. But that just didn't happen in the early 70s, late 60s. So be, is there anything that you truly look at for somebody like Frazier to give him such a high defensive valuation beyond how much of like an off-ball hurricane he is? I think he's on ball too. I mean, I think that's that's the thing about him for that era that stands out to me is that we know the dribbling rules were more constrained. We know pressure was a tactic that was unleashed in the backcourt. Well, he was a one-man press. You just put him on the ball handler and you can create chaos. And he seems to do this fairly consistently a lot. Now, if you're if you're worried about overrating that, I mean, we don't have robust data, so it's possible I'm overrating that. But certainly on and off the ball, he just looks like one of the great point guard defenders. Like, he's a good 6'3", really, really active, incredibly fast hands. Incre- I talked about that lateral spins and back. Like, he's, his movement defensively just blanketed guys back then who at times had a hard time getting it across half court on him in critical moments. So yeah, I'm that, that's why I'm very high uh, on him defensively. Let's finish up with one or two more names, and then we will come back in episode three and continue this and get to uh, another key discussion that I want to get to. Number 36, he was 35 last time, is Paul Pierce. And number 35 is Patrick Ewing, He was 28th last time, and Cody, I have seen a ton of Knicks games in the last few years, and I would say I might be a hair lower on Patrick Ewing's peak offense and kind of what it means to be a scorer of that level without being too much of a passer or what it means to try to run a post-centric offense through a scorer like that that isn't too much of a passer. But the bigger thing to me is just being more comfortable understanding that the historically great Knicks defenses under Pat Riley, when he took over in 1993 and 1994, were about scheme and personnel, coaching, and the same thing the Pistons had, just like balance across the floor, being insanely physical, and putting a ton of defensive players out there. And to wit, they started Patrick Ewing next to Charles Oakley and Charles Smith. Charles Smith is like 6'11" playing small forward for the Knicks. And he is not, you know, like an offensive wonderkind or anything like that. This is all defensive stuff all the time. 
from New York. And so I do think Ewing as the shot blocking center is nice. But I mean, heck, even when you put Herb Williams in the game as a shot blocking center, I did a I did a whole podcast episode a few years ago. One of the reasons why, as well as studying the X's and O's of the Knicks, I've come to this conclusion. A whole podcast episode that was devoted to the best defenses ever without elite shot blockers on the team. And it turns out that if you have great defensive personnel and you have a coach like Larry Brown, that's or in this case, Pat Riley, that's defensively focused and oriented, you can get a really good defense without a great shot blocker. And so I think Ewing only made them a little better versus, oh my God, how good must Patrick Ewing be to be the anchor of these great defenses? Cody, it's kind of like a cousin to the rule. Don't equate a team's offensive rating to the individual player. It's the same thing. Don't equate a team's defensive rating to the shot-blocking defensive anchor who's the best player on that team. Let's stop there for now. Let's, let's call this a wrap on episode two. And when we come back in episode three of this series, we will get to the question that just is on everyone's mind these days. Off-ball versus heliocentrism. Let's leave it there. Uh, if you want access to some of these stats that we're referencing, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball is the place to go. We have a ton more additional content, uh, a monthly Q&A, uh, and, and many other things that I'm forgetting right now. <laughs> patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. Hope you enjoyed this one. Hope you're enjoying this series and that wherever you are listening from, you are, of course, having a great day.